I'll invite you once again to, uh, to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Haggai, chapter 2. We've been teaching a series on uh, the glory of the Lord for the last several weeks, and we want to continue along that line. Uh, last uh, Sunday morning, if you were with us, we talked about a lot of things regarding God's plan. And we went back to the, uh, to the story of creation, and we went back to some things that the Bible says about um, uh, the conditions of the earth and, and the conditions that existed when God created man in His image. But uh, Haggai chapter 2, we want to use these or have been using these as a text scripture. God is speaking <coughs> of the last days. He's, um, he's not speaking of the temples of, uh, of Israel, although that's uh, the time that he spoke. He spoke these things at the time where the second temple was being rebuilt. <coughs> the first temple was Solomon's temple and it was filled with the glory of God. The second temple was, um, uh, was simply just called that, the second temple. But it didn't have the same glory that Solomon's temple did. Then the third temple was Herod's temple. It was what Herod built. Uh, it was the one that, uh, that existed in the days of Jesus. And Jesus wasn't really impressed with that when the disciples were because it was not built to the glory of God. It was built to the glory of Herod. And so where this, uh, these scriptures where it's talking about this house, I'm sure that uh, Haggai and, and those that heard this message thought that it was talking about the second temple. But it wasn't. We, uh, we've made reference to the fact that when the second temple was dedicated, there were people that were still alive that saw the first temple in its glory, and they wept because they said, this is nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple. So this, this, these scriptures, therefore, if they're not pertaining to and don't apply to the, to the second temple that was rebuilt, or Herod's temple, which Jesus wasn't impressed with, then it has to reference the church. And here's what God says about the last days regarding the church. He said, and I will shake all nations... So the last days regarding the church will be a day where nations are being shaken. See anything that might qualify for that today? It's hard to find any area of, of the world that's not being shaken right now, isn't it? It says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Now the desire of all nations, as we've talked about before, the Bible says the earth is groaning and travailing together until the manifestation of the sons of God. It's talking about the rapture. So he's talking about end time events. So he says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. In other words, Jesus is saying before the rapture comes, all the nations will shake. Now many times people just look at that as being earthquakes and stuff like that, but we can certainly see them shaking politically. We can certainly see them shaking economically and maybe in, in a number of other ways that you could, could uh, uh, imagine or, or consider. But he says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And here's a last day condition as well. I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, as we said before, that's not talking about the second temple. He's talking about the church. God's plan was never to, build, to, to live in a building, but to live in you, because you're his building. Paul said that you are the building of God. You're the house of God. So his desire is to fill you with glory. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, we've said this before. We don't want to go into a lot of detail about it, because um, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of disagreement about it. I'm just going to let you figure it out for yourself. Silver and gold has something to do with glory. Or else, why would he say it? He hasn't changed subjects. <clears throat> so when he's talking about filling the house with glory, when he's talking about the last day condition of the church, he's talking about silver and gold in connection with it in some way or another. You figure out whatever you want that to mean for yourself. And may I say what Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. 
A lot of the church world is saying, oh, that prosperity stuff, forget that. They're just greedy people. Well, according to your faith, be it unto you. You want to believe that God wants you to be poor? Be it unto you according to your faith. Folks, that's the way the Bible works. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house, again, he's talking about the church, shall be greater than of the former. That's talking about Solomon's temple. The former, the only former house they had of God prior to that point in time, or relative to that point in time where these words are spoken, are either the tabernacle in the wilderness, which never was considered to be the house of God or the temple of God, and Solomon's temple, which was filled with glory to such a degree when it was dedicated that the priest couldn't stand to minister. The presence of God was so real in that place that people couldn't even enter into the place. So he says, the glory of this latter house, the church, shall be greater than of the former. In other words, the glory of God shall be seen more on the church than it was seen on Solomon's temple. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place, the church, the house of God, will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, as I mentioned before, we talked a lot about... uh, um, the creation of man last, uh, last Sunday morning. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 the conditions prior to God creating mankind. Uh, we went into some detail about that, and, and I, I, we don't have time to go through all the, the information. If you weren't here with us last Sunday, uh, let me encourage you to get a hold of the, the tape or the CD or whatever means of, you know, however you listen to stuff. Let me encourage you to get a hold of that because uh, what we're going to say this morning is going to build on that, but we don't have time to go back and and re-say what we said. But we will kind of uh, summarize a couple of things. When God recreates the earth, he makes uh, the earth, he makes the, uh, he calls for the earth to bring forth seed. He doesn't, he doesn't say from nothing tree be. He says, let the earth bring forth her seed. In other words, there was something in the earth that, uh, that, tra- that, uh, that grew into the plants and the animals, not the animals, but the plants and the, the vegetation and, and all the things that God commanded. Then he made the animals and he uh, made everything that was uh, sufficient for man, put everything in place that would, uh, that would provide for man. And then he said in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man in our own image. And let them, mankind in other words, male and female, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and all the earth, all, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now we also looked at Psalm chapter 8. And I, I would like for you to turn there with me, if you will, to, to remind yourself or refresh your, your memory about what, uh, what the Bible says about the creation of man. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that these were the angels or an angel's reaction to the creation of Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden. The angels, looking upon this scene, declare something. Now remember, the angels are eternal. Well, they're eternal, but they were created beings. So they had a beginning, and their beginning was way before God created the Genesis count of Adam and Eve. So now the angels are watching this, and, and they said... Verse 3, beginning in verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3. It says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Now, as I said, Hebrews chapter 2 says this is the angels. This is not David saying, Wow, God, you really made something cool here. This is the angels talking about the original creation. So he said, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? 
In other words, the angels are saying, this thing that you're creating called man, that you gave dominion over all the works of your hands, this thing called man is not anything we've ever seen before. This is unique to any of your creation. This is unique to anything you've ever done before. It's unique to anything else that's in the universe. It's unique to anything else that was ever here on the earth before. This is unique. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Now, mindful of him is, is kind of a, uh, well, it's kind of vanilla in the, in the King James. But think about what that means. The Bible says that when God created man, God came down to the earth to walk with man in the cool of the garden. Every other being has to come to God. But God came to man. Every other thing that God created, he created with his fingers. He created with his hands. But the Bible says that he breathed into man the breath of life. Now, the picture that that paints to it for us from the original Hebrew language is God created the form or the body of man, stood him up, and breathed into him or talked to him. He probably said, breathing into him is probably God using his voice to say, life be, just like he said, light be, on the first day of creation. Or something to that effect. I, I, I'm not saying I've got all the answers on that or got it all figured out. God hadn't showed me anything about that. That's just the word picture that the, that the Hebrew language provides for us. So he breathed into man the breath of life. It's the only thing that became alive that way. It's the only thing that God took of himself to put in to any other created being. He didn't even do that with the angels. That's why the, one of the reasons, I think, why the angels are saying, what is this thing called man? You didn't create us like that. You don't come to us. We come to you. And we, as your servants, we carry out your instructions and we do the things that you tell us to do. But you give man authority. You gave man dominion over all the works of your hands. What is this thing called man? So what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. Now this word visitest does not have as much to do with coming down to, to, to be with him in the garden as it does God coming to him to breathe into him the breath of life. Verse 5. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. You look up that word angels. It's the, it's the word Elohim. It's literally the angels saying you have made him a little lower than you. Not lower than us. You've made him a little lower than you. He's above us but under you. It almost sounds like a jealous kid. Mom, how come you did that for my brother? You didn't ever do, never did that for me. Thou hast made him a little lower than yourself, Elohim, the Godhead. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now the angels tell us more information about what God did than the Genesis account, Genesis account does. Because the Genesis account in Genesis 1.26 where we see, where we read or referred to a few minutes ago, God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion. That's all he said. Let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Here it says you crowned him with glory and honor. You crowned him with glory and honor and then gave him dominion. You crowned him with glory and honor. Now this is the same glory. It's, in the Old Testament particularly, there is one primary word that's used for glory. In the New Testament, there are two words that are used for glory. If you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, along with the Greek New Testament, which is the original language of the New Testament, you'll find out that it's the same word used throughout. Same word used throughout, with the exception of the few times in the New Testament where a different word is used. Now, what does the word glory really mean? We've described it. We've looked at scriptures in the Old Testament where it was the, the cloud, where it was like smoke, 
where it was a glistening, literally a light within a cloud or a light like in, inside of a fog. We've seen that it was a light that shined from heaven around Saul on the road to Damascus that was brighter than the noonday sun. Paul said that he couldn't see for three days for the glory of that light. Not because he was blind, not because there was some kind of sickness or something that came upon him, but because of the brightness of that light. And that's in the middle of the day. So we've described different things that the Bible says about the glory of God, but what does glory really mean? Glory seems to be one of those words that you're supposed to understand what it means without having a definition. Because so many of the definitions you'll find, even from the original words that are used, both Hebrew and Greek, they use the same word, they use glory to describe glory. Now in the the, the Greek, and this would be the definition in Jesus' day, the Septuagint um, uh, was the Bible of Jesus' day, literally. It was the Bible of Jesus' day. It was the Bible that was, uh, that was readily available to the common man. It was the Septuagint. And so it's the, the, the Greek translation from the Hebrew, which everybody understood and, the, um, uh, and everybody except the Orthodox Jews used as the Bible. Now, you understand as well as I do that all they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written when Jesus was here on the earth. But most of the references in the New Testament to Old Testament scriptures are from the Greek or literally Septuagint translation of the Hebrew. So it's, therefore, it's pretty reliable. It's not exact. Nothing is. I've never found any translation that's, that's, that doesn't have something in it that contradicts uh, the character and the nature of God in some way or another. But, the, but in some ways, the Septuagint is more reliable than the King James because the, the Hebrew language very often gives two different meanings and sometimes two opposite meanings for the same word. In other words, one meaning... Uh, Well, in Isaiah chapter 45, where God said, I form the light and create evil. The word create that's translated in the King James means two things. It means I either make it or I cut down. The same word means both things. Well, in so many times, the translators translated according to their understanding of God. A translation is never going to be any better than the the knowledge of the language that the translators have and their knowledge of God. Every translation is going to be based on those two things. Well, sometimes their knowledge of the language is good, but their knowledge of God is really lousy. And as such, the King James English comes out saying that God does a lot of things that the Bible says he doesn't do. And in most cases, it's simply a matter of the translation. It's not an error in the text, it's just an error in the translation. So this translated word, glory, in the Greek, literally means this. It's the word doxa. It's where we get, you ever heard the doxology? It means something that is given to the glory of God. Now this Greek word, glory, is used 177 times in the New Testament. Jesus talked a lot about glory. Paul talked a lot about glory. John talked some. James talked some. Peter talked some. 177 times in the New Testament, the word doxa is used for glory. Now, there are... um, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. 177 times the word glory is in the New Testament. 150 of those 177 times is the word doxa. Now there are 27 times where a different word is used as translated glory. And it always means to boast. Examples of this would be, uh, well let me read a couple of examples of this just to give you an idea. Most of the, uh, or many of the examples are right there together where Paul is talking about his own, um, his own situation, his thorn in the flesh. For example, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, he said, If I must needs glory or boast, 
I will glory or boast of those things which concern my infirmities. Chapter 12, verse 1. It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory or boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He talks about the one caught up into the third heaven. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says, Of such a one will I glory or boast. Yet of myself will I not glory or boast, but in my own infirmities. Verse 6, For though I would desire to glory or boast, I shall not be as a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that which he heareth of me. In other words, that's the problem with boasting. People think the wrong things about you. He goes on in verse 9, where the Lord answers him, when he prays three times for this persecution to be taken away from him. The Lord said unto me, My grace is sufficient in thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of of Christ may rest upon me. So even though the New Testament, uh, or even though the King James translates this word as glory, it's literally the word boast. But every other time, 150 times out of 177 times in the New Testament, this word glory, English word glory, is the word doxa in the Greek. And it means this. It's from the base of a word, another Greek word, that means to think. So the word glory is designed to make you think something. And it means simply this. It means, and here's the definition. I'm reading it straight out of the Strong's. It says glory as very apparent in a wide application, literally or figuratively, objectively or subjectively, dignity, glory, glorious, honor, praise, worship. Okay, so does everybody know what glory means now? (laughs) Now for the Bible to talk so much about the glory of God, For us not to know what it means, that's significant, isn't it? I could read this all day, and I have. And I come away thinking, yeah, but what does it mean? Well, it means glory. Okay. In a wide application, either literally or figuratively. Oh, that helps. Either objectively or subjectively. Great. So I spent a lot of time praying about this this week because I, I really got to the place where I said, wait a minute, I, all right, I know what glory is supposed to be. I've got some, some vague image of what glory is supposed to be, but honestly, my definition of glory is about as cloudy as, as what the Bible says that the glory of the Lord was in the Old Testament. What is it really supposed to mean? And I believe the Lord gave me something. I'm going to let you judge it for yourself, but I believe the Lord gave me something. It's the wow factor. Now, when the angels in in Psalm 8 are saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? They're going, Wow. When the glory of the Lord appeared in Solomon's temple, everybody went, Wow. When Jesus shows up and does miracles, everybody goes, Wow. Wow. When the lame were healed and the sick were, the, the, the demon possessed were delivered and the, the sick were healed and, and, and all the things that Jesus did, everybody went, wow. When Jesus taught, and all of these things the Bible attaches to the glory of God. When Jesus taught, everybody said, wow, we've never heard it like that before. The glory of God is the wow factor. When God created man, He put something on him that every other being, which at that time all there were were the angels, went, 
Wow. And then they questioned it. They said, what is man that you gave him the wow factor? Now, folks, we know what happened. We know that Satan came into the middle of this. Satan saw clearly. The Bible says that Satan had a position of authority. We, we went through some of this last week. The Bible says that Satan had a position of authority before God ever created Adam and Eve. It said that he had a throne. That means dominion. It says that he was perfect in all of his ways until iniquity was found in him. It says that he was most, the most beautiful and the wisest of all the creatures, uh, creatures or creation that existed at that time. Satan was the wow factor of God. Now, I'm not saying he had the same thing that God put on man. I don't believe he did. But he had the highest or the greatest level, the most of whatever you could have at the time and in the, 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 uh, the age that he lived and ruled. And then he rebelled against God, and he lost everything. Now, imagine that from Satan's point of view. You know, the devil always tries to tell you where you messed up. Folks, I want you to consider how bad the devil messed up. He had everything. And then he rebelled against God trying to get more. And he was reduced to nothing. Nothing. And everybody that rebelled with him saw. This is the guy we followed. The angels, the two-thirds of the angels that didn't rebel against God, they see Satan is nothing. He's less than nothing. He used to be something, but now he's nothing. So when Satan sees God crown man with glory and honor, put the wow factor on man. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you this is what you ought to think. I'm not trying to tell you this is what you ought to believe. But for me, the wow factor means the supernatural. That's what distinguished man from anything else and everything else. Now, but it goes even further than that because angels are supernatural. And man had something they didn't have. So when Satan, who has been reduced to nothing, sees that man has been crowned with glory and honor, God has given him the wow factor in even a greater measure than Satan ever had, that becomes his goal. To take the wow factor from man. To steal man's glory so he comes into the garden of eden he deceives eve in the same way that he instigated iniquity himself he told eve you can have more than what you have you're the ruler of the earth you and your husband adam are, are literally the gods of this world but god knows there's so much more and you could have that if you only disobey god and do what i tell you to do that's why the idea for me, the idea for Adam, uh, for, for uh, Satan coming into the Garden of Eden as a snake is just ridiculous. If he comes in as a snake, Eve's going to say, well, you're under me. How do you know so much? Why would I believe you? Your great knowledge doesn't seem to be working for you too well because you're a creeping thing upon the earth. So he had to come in with something that in my estimation, my thinking, agree, disagree, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But in my thinking, he had to come in in some way that made him appear to be that which he was not. And really the word translated servant, or serpent in Genesis is just the word deceiver. 
He came in as the deceiver. Serpent is just a type of that which represents deception or evil. doesn't say he came in as a snake. It said he came in as a deceiver. I think he came in looking better than Adam. He had to have something to him that made him appear to have credibility with whatever he was saying. Well, what was he after? He was after man's glory. And guess what he got? He stole man's glory. Now, that doesn't mean Satan now has glory. It just means man lost it. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, it says that they recognized. Instantly, they knew they were ashamed. In other words, they became conscious of a change in themselves. They became conscious of their own shortcomings. They knew they were naked. Well, they were naked before they ate the fruit. What happened? I think the light of the glory of God went out on them. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. Therefore all, King James says, therefore all have sinned. That's not the original, that's not the correct translation. The word have is not there. Therefore all sinned. In other words, when Adam sinned, because you and I were in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned. God looks at things differently than we do. God doesn't look at the actions of the individual alone. God looks at their seed or those that will follow them. The Bible says that uh, Levi paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek. Well, Levi wasn't even born. How could Levi pay tithes in Melchizedek? In Adam, in Abraham, excuse me. How could Levi pay tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek? Because Levi was Adam's seed. You and I are Adam's... I'm sorry, I messed that up. Levi was Abraham's seed. You and I are Adam's seed. So when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. That's why Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. And what do we fall short of? The glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, I believe that scripture is saying, When everybody sinned in Adam... We fell from glory. We fell from that place of being crowned with glory and honor. <clears throat> we lost, the man lost dominion over the earth. Satan then becomes the God of this world. That's the only way that the Bible could, t- could say legitimately in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that Satan is the God of this world. How could Satan be the God of this world if God's the creator of this world? Because God gave the authority of this world to Adam and Eve and they gave it to, Adam, uh, to uh, Satan through disobedience to God. Satan says as much he, when he uh, shows Jesus in, uh, in, what is it, Luke chapter 4, where he's tempting Jesus. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and all the glory of them. And he said, this will I give to whomsoever I will because it's been delivered to me. Well, who delivered it to him? God sure didn't give it to him. Who delivered it to him? Adam did. So man fell from glory and Satan knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Satan has had some experience in that falling stuff. And so that became his goal where mankind was concerned. His means of attacking God was to steal his most precious possession, which was his son, Adam. I don't know about you, but I'd a whole lot rather have somebody attack me directly than attack me through my kids. But the devil's smart. He knows he can hurt you more through your kids. 
Come on, Mr. Devil, I know what the Bible says. Bring it on. Come through my kids, that's a different thing. Because now I can't fight it directly. I can only fight it through prayer where my kids are concerned. That's a tougher way, for, at least in my experience, that's been a tougher way. So now Satan has stolen the glory from mankind. God can't go down immediately and hug Adam to himself because the Bible says God's a consuming fire. Adam is sinful. If God goes down as a natural parent would when their child falls and try to scoop him up in their arms, he destroys man. So what does he do? He shows them the sacrifice. He creates skins for them to clothe them. Where do he get the skins? By making sacrifice of animals. He teaches them that through a blood sacrifice is the only way that they can come back to God, but they can't come back to their original place of glory through the animal sacrifice. They can only come back to a, uh, a granted, credited position of right standing, but not true righteousness like they had before. And so for thousands of years, God has to sit by while man tries to work himself back to God. God gives him the law. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show him you can't do this on your own. The purpose of the law was not to get man to keep rules and regulations. The purpose of the law was to show him no matter how much you try, you're not going to be able to live without breaking the rules and regulations, meaning you can't do this on your own. You have to have a Savior. That was the only purpose of the law. The sole purpose of the law. It was an instructor. It was a tutor to show you, you need something more than you. Then God sends Jesus. Now I want you to turn with me over to... um, um, turn with over to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. The ministry of Paul was so significant because Paul was the first one to provide information regarding the mystery. Here's what I mean by that. Paul said, writing to the Galatians, when he's justifying, and we're studying some of this on Wednesday nights during the, during the study of the book of Galatians. Paul tells them very specifically, the gospel that I received, I didn't get from man. Nobody taught this to me. The Jews were coming back, the, the ones that wanted people, the Christians to continue to keep the law and be circumcised and stuff like that. They tried to attack Paul's ministry by saying, well, who is he? The people in Jerusalem, Peter and James and, and John, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that everybody recognizes, Peter and John who were with Jesus and one of his, you know, some of his original disciples, they didn't anoint or ordain Paul to be an, a, an apostle. So who is he to come in and tell everybody that it's different than, than the way that things are, are being done in Jerusalem? Now, some of what they said was being done in Jerusalem wasn't true, but nevertheless, Paul identifies and Paul answers that by saying, no man made me an apostle. God did. No man gave me my message. This isn't what you might hear taught in Jerusalem because God didn't give it to, the, to them to give to me. He gave it to me. And he says that that ministry, the gospel that the whole world will be judged by, he calls that the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. Now let me show you what that means. In, uh, in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Paul says, Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel. The word established means to be firmly fixed. It means to be strong. If you want to be established... If you want to be strong in the things of God, Paul's going to tell you how that works. He's going to tell you the way to be strong. And folks, I would submit to you, here's why most of the church world is not strong. 
Paul said, according to him that is able to keep you or establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Paul is saying, if you're going to be strong, you're going to have to be strong in my gospel. What was Paul's gospel? Paul's gospel was Jesus, faith in Jesus only, not rules and regulations. Faith in Jesus only, faith in what Jesus has already accomplished for you. That's why it's so important for you to say what the Bible says about you. That's why it's important for you to say you're righteous when you feel unworthy. Because it's by speaking what the Bible says, what Jesus has done for you, that's the only way that you overcome this sense or feeling of unworthiness to be strong in the Lord. That's why you have to say that you're healed by the stripes of Jesus when your body is screaming out, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick. That's why you have to say that I, everything I put my hand to prospers even when you don't have two nickels to rub together. Because it's by this saying, it's by you exercising your authority, your spiritual authority, by speaking the Word of God in the face of contradicting circumstances, that's the only way that it comes to pass in your life. And that's why the devil fights confession so much. Because apart from confessing what the Bible says, you can never grow in God, you can never be strong in God, you can never realize what Jesus has done for you. And that's why confession. You won't hear people really fighting faith because faith is the way to get saved. What you hear them fighting is the element of faith that is called confession. Why? Because without confession, there is no real faith. But it's so easy for Christians to go through life saying, Oh, well, I believe God. I trust God. I just love God so much. And what they mean is they've got everything. You've seen those commercials on TV about bundling? People move into the new house and they bring this bundle to them. That's what Christians do spiritually. They bundle all these words and they don't know what any of them are. They bundle all this love God. Well, Jesus said you love me if you keep my word. Oh, well now, Pastor Mike, you're just judging. Yeah, well, the Bible kind of does that. Jesus said if you love me, you'll keep my words. Period. Not you'll have warm, fuzzy feelings toward me. You've got so much of the church world, especially our young people. We have such a job to do with our young people because there is such a, a, an attack of the spirit of the world against the young people now to say everything's okay, to say that homosexuality is okay. The Bible says it's sin, and it's not a hate crime to say so. If homosexuality is a sin, then gay marriage is wrong. Oh, but Pastor Mike, now you're just judging. No, I'm telling you what the Bible says. But so much of our young people now, they want to take this position that, oh, but it, it should be all right for two people to just love each other in whatever way they want to. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. But now you've got young people turning against the church saying, well, the church is just judgmental. Why? Because we're telling you the truth. But that's what's happening in our schools. The school, forget reading, writing, arithmetic. It's recycling gay marriage and homosexuality. <laughs> Which is why the public school system is doing such a bang-up job. Which is why the, school, the kids coming through public school, by and large, are having such a wonderful test scores. Test them on homosexuality and see how they do. Well, they'll nail that one because that's what they've been taught. Folks, that's the way the devil operates. It's exactly the way the devil operates. If you're going to be strong in the Lord, you're going to have to be strong by saying what the Bible says. 
You're going to have to know what it means to love God. Loving God, Jesus said, is keeping His Word. If you keep His Word, that means you're going to say what the Holy Ghost told you to say. It means you're going to walk in love the way the Holy Ghost tells you to love, to love the way Jesus loved. Jesus loved everybody, but He told people when they were in sin. Jesus told the woman that was taken in adultery, He said, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. I wish I didn't have to talk about this stuff. But not talking about this stuff gives the people that are thinking the wrong thing a free pass to keep going down the road their own. Oh, but Pastor Mike, aren't you afraid of people leaving your church? No, I'm, I'm used to that. <laughs> Folks, if I was trying to draw a crowd, I'd say a lot of things differently than what I say. But I'm not here to please the people. I'm here to please God. And the only way I can please God is by telling the truth. Now, what you do with the truth, once I tell you, once I say, show you what the Bible says, what you do with it, that's up to you. The Lord rewards you according to your works. Okay, back to Romans 16, verse 25. Notice this. Paul said, if you're going to be strong or established, it's going to be according to my gospel. That means stay out of the Old Testament. You know how many people want to talk about the book of Job? Well, what about Job? What about Job? I'd rather stick with Paul's gospel. There's a lot of things about Job I don't know. Now, I know more about Job than most of the people that I've talked to. But even at that, it's Old Testament. Yeah, but does that mean God did this? Does that mean God brought these things on Job? No. God said he didn't. Job said he didn't. But if you want to know what God's like, look at the Gospels. Look at the gospel that Paul preached. Why? Because Paul said that this, his gospel is the revelation of the mystery. You're not going to know the mystery through the Old Testament. And in, in my opinion, this is why God picked Paul. Because nobody knew the Old Testament better than Paul did. He had the same training, he had the same teaching as the Old Testament high priests. So for Paul to know the Old Testament, for him to have the training of the Old Testament priest, the high priest, same training that they had, same training that the other priests had, for Paul to know that and then see Jesus and have the revelation of how these things in the Old Testament were fulfilled by Jesus, he's got the whole package. That's why Peter said, our brother Paul says things that are hard to understand. You know why they're hard to understand for Peter? Because he's still living out of a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. That's why the epistles that Paul wrote to us are so important because they contain exactly who we are in Christ. And this is what Paul says. He says, my gospel is the revelation of the mystery. The revelation of the mystery. Now notice what it says about this mystery. Which was kept secret since the world began. Which was kept secret since the world began. Now that word world can be one of two things. It can either be the creation of the original Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or it can be the recreation of the earth in the Adam and Eve account. I don't know which one it is. I think the word used here, somebody, if somebody's got a, a concordance or something, tell me real quickly. I think this word is cosmos, which means the world system, which generally means the Adam and Eve system of the world that we know of now. But it could mean the beginning of man, uh, the beginning since Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Could be either one of those. Somebody get that? What is it? Kratos. 
Okay, well, that's not the world system then. Then that lends credibility to it being since the beginning of time. Now, think about it either way. I don't care which way it is, but think about it either way. That means God kept a secret from mankind since at least Adam and Eve, maybe even before. He kept a secret. What was the secret that he kept? Well, look with me over to Ephesians chapter 3 now. Paul's gospel is the revelation of the secret. Ephesians chapter 3. Notice something else Paul says about his ministry. And folks, let me, let me point this out too. There's no wonder Paul's had so much trouble from the devil. There's no wonder the devil stirred up trouble and persecution against him. And he tells us about the persecution that the church world calls the thorn in the flesh. So much of the church world has wrongly thought that that's some sickness or disease, but it's just persecution that's against Paul everywhere he goes. Most of it by the Jews. Why was Paul so persecuted? Because he's the one that had the secret. He's the one to whom God revealed the secret. And Paul is doing everything he can to get the revelation of that secret out to mankind. And the devil's trying to stop him at every hand. I, I remember some years ago when we were in the middle of our building program, building trouble, I should say. <laughs> I was talking to another pastor out in Riverside that he had run into some similar problems, different, different set of circumstances, but he was having some of the same trouble. And, uh, and, and we got to where we'd laugh with each other saying, but I got more, more lawsuits in my building than you do. And so we would compete, and both of us were hoping to lose, but we would compete with the trouble that we were having. And he said to me one time, he said, you know, the Baptists don't have this kind of trouble in my city. He said, the Methodists don't have this kind of trouble in my city. He said, the only reason I'm having the trouble in my city is because I'm trying to get out the revelation of Jesus. Interesting thought. But so many times people run into trouble and they, they start whining and say, I don't know why this is happening to me. Well, it might be happening to you because you're trying to obey God. And if that's the case, then stand in the face of the trouble and declare the word of God because God will see you through. The Bible says that the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. There's something about knowing you're doing what God told you to do. That gives you a confidence in life that nothing else can. Folks, I got to tell you, we started saying this some years ago. We are the church that cannot die. You know why? Because we're doing what God told us to do. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3. Verse, uh, let's start in verse 7. Paul says, Whereof I was made a minister. According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. In other words, he's saying, God called me to be a minister and he equipped me. Now he's talking about himself. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now you notice that phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Folks, I want you to understand, anytime you feel like you don't have enough, the Bible says there are unsearchable riches in Christ. That means if you think you're missing out on something, then the only thing you need is to search a little bit more to find what you do need. Verse 9, and to make all men see, here's part of his, his calling, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What is the fellowship of the mystery? Which from the beginning of the world 
Now again, I don't know if this is the beginning of, of the Adam world or if it was the beginning of the Genesis 1-1 world. Which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. The Bible is saying God had a hiding place. Now, folks, the, the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost all have distinct purposes in the Godhead. God's the planner. Jesus is the revealer. And the Holy Ghost is the agent by which the work of God is done. Jesus reveals by His Word. So this is telling us that the mystery, the secret plan of God was hidden in God from the beginning of the world. There's a scripture, I don't know if we'll get to it this morning, but there's a scripture that says that, uh, that if Satan knew what God's plan was, he never would have crucified Jesus. And he calls him the Lord of glory. He never would have crucified the Lord of glory. God had this secret that was hidden from the beginning of the world. Personally, I think it was the Genesis 1-1 beginning. But I don't know for sure. I think it was always God's plan for man to be the end result. But you decide for yourself. But that's what this is talking about, where the mystery is concerned. Now, let's see what the mystery is. Second Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Oh, we're out of time. Well, we'll pick up here next week. First Corinthians chapter 2. We're not going to be able to do anything, just to introduce it. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, um, Oh, well, let's just start in verse 1. Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Paul knew that he was not a good speaker. God didn't pick the most eloquent speaker to reveal the mystery. He says himself, that, or the Bible says, the Holy Ghost says that Apollos was a much, much more excellent speaker. So he said, I didn't come with excellency of speech. Verse 2, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus and him crucified. Now, folks, that's really important because Jesus and him crucified means the sacrifice of Jesus. He's saying, I determined not to know anything among you about the Old Testament law. I determined not to know anything. I didn't want to tell you of anything regarding Abraham and Abraham's blessings and all the other kind of stuff regarding the law of Moses and what God did in the Old Testament. I didn't want you to know anything except Jesus and what was accomplished through his crucifixion. In other words, the only thing I wanted you to know is who you could be in Christ when you make Jesus your Lord. That's the only thing I wanted you to know. Paul seemed to think that was sufficient. Should be for us too. So I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. In other words, he's saying it wasn't my speech that I wanted to convince you with. I wanted you to be convinced with the wow factor of God. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men or men's ability to use words, but in the power of God. Have you noticed in the political scene how no matter what happens, everybody will spin it to say it's something else? 
That's what this means. That's the same kind of thing this is talking about. Not a twisting of words, not trying to convince you by some twist of words. It's amazing. Unemployment numbers will come out and they'll be terrible. And all of a sudden, you'll have political people talking about, well, it's, this is a good sign. <laughs> what are they talking about? That's what this means. Instead of twisting words to try to make you think something that they want you to think, he wants your faith to stand in the power of God. Folks, let me tell you something. No matter who says what about whether or not God heals or whether or not God does miracles or whether or not God supplies your needs, I cannot be convinced otherwise because I've seen it. Somebody's wasting their time telling me. And as soon as you can get somebody to experience the things of God for themselves, they're hooked. If they, well, they're hooked if they continue in them. I've seen people turn away from them. But that's not a real common thing. Because once you see it, how are you going to believe somebody that says God doesn't do that anymore? I was talking to a guy not too long ago and he says, well... But have you ever seen an organic condition healed? Somebody that didn't have eyes and eyes were, were formed. No. But I've seen blind eyes open. Does that not count? Well, yeah, but, but have you ever seen anybody that didn't have a hand that, that that hand was created? No, but I've seen tumors disappear. Does that not count? See, people get into all these mental gyrations about stuff and all these arguments about things. When you've experienced the power of God, how do you turn away from that? Paul seems to think that's a big hook. He said, I wanted to demonstrate the power of God to you so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where your faith should be, folks. Not in somebody's preaching, not in somebody's teaching, not in somebody's testimony, but in the power of God. Howbeit, verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of the world that come to naught. Now, I've got to take that one apart. I've got to take a few minutes and take that one apart. He says, We speak wisdom among those that are perfect. The perfect that he's talking about is, we're telling Christians the wisdom of God. Those that are perfect are those that are made complete in Christ. Perfect doesn't mean you never miss it. Perfect means you've been made complete in Christ. Now, folks, no matter how much better you learn to live, no matter how much better you learn to walk in love, you'll never be more complete than complete. And even if you sin, even if you fall and stumble into sin, you're still complete in Him. You need to repent of the unrighteous action, the stumbling and the falling into sin. That's 1 John 1, 9. But you're still complete in Him. It doesn't keep you from being complete in Him. That's why there's such a difference between righteous, being made righteous, and living righteously. The devil always attacks your living unrighteously and says that means you're not righteous. No, it doesn't. It means you stumbled and fell. Boy, I wish I could get that across to people. But it takes years to get it across to most people. Because they're so used to operating according to how they feel based on what they've done. That's rules and regulations. That's what Paul is saying. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus and Him crucified. The fact that you were made righteous by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. Period. So he says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Those that are made, those that are made righteous in Christ. Those that have become complete in Him because you've been born again. We're speaking the wisdom of God to Christians. But not the wisdom of this world. 
The wisdom of who you are in Christ is not the wisdom of this world, nor is it the wisdom of the princes of this world that come to naught. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about Satan's power. And notice he said, the Satan's power has come to naught. One translation says, the dethroned powers that rule this world. The dethroned powers that rule this world. Now, wait a minute. We know that Satan dethroned Adam in the Garden of Eden by causing Adam to fall short of the glory of God. How is Satan now dethroned because of Jesus' work? The Bible says Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. One, uh, one minister friend of mine says, Jesus defeated the devil and paraded him through downtown eternity. I love that. Satan is a defeated foe. He still rules the world, but only over those that don't know he's dethroned. That's why it's so important for you to learn who you are in Christ. It's so important for you to say what the Bible says you are in Christ so that he no longer rules over you, even though Jesus has made you free. And that's why so much of the church world is bound by sin or, or, or sickness or whatever the case is, because they don't know that Jesus has made them free. They haven't stepped into that freedom by confessing who they are in Christ. And so Satan, even though he's defeated, even though his power is broken, still holds them in, holds them, uh, in, in bondage. So he says, we don't speak the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But, verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now, a mystery is something that was hidden that is now revealed. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world. Remember it was hidden? Remember the secret was hidden from the beginning of the world? Which was hidden, or I'm sorry, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world. What was the mystery that Paul had revealed to him? Even our glory. The mystery that was revealed that if Satan had known he never would have crucified Jesus for was that when Jesus defeated the devil by being raised from the dead, when Jesus was crucified, Satan thought he had him. When Jesus spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth in the middle of hell, Satan thought he had him because nobody had ever come back from hell. How could anybody come back from hell? It's impossible. It's the place of the dead. It's the final judgment of God. How could anybody come back from the dead? But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he restored the wow factor to man. He restored man's authority. He has restored man's glory. Now, this is all by making Jesus the Lord of your life. I don't mean it just came on the earth all of a sudden by itself. I mean, he restored it for those that would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He restored their authority over Satan, over every other thing in the earth, every other power in the earth. He restored their glory. He restored that honor. He restored that place of dominion. He restored the supernatural, the wow factor, the miraculous to mankind. And had Satan known that that would be the end result. Now look at where Satan came from. He came from seeing man with the wow factor to stealing the wow factor. To having it taken from him through Jesus forever. And now he can't get it back. Now he can't get it back. And folks, you need to know something. We'll quit with this. I've got further I want to go, but we'll quit here for this morning. Because he knows he can't get it back and because he knows his time is short. 
I, uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Rather than quote this to you, let me, let me show you. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 talks about the story of Israel. It talks about Jesus being a, a, a child of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. And it talks about how Satan tried to destroy him and he couldn't. And so God protected him and kept him and so forth. Notice it says... Um, We'll start in verse 10. Now I heard, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. That's not talking about the future, folks. That's talking about already. That's talking about when Jesus was raised from the dead. That's when Satan was defeated. Satan's not going to be defeated down the road. Satan's already defeated. Now God will deal with him once and for all and cast him into the bottomless pit. But he's already been defeated. He's a dethroned power that still rules over the world or that part of the world that doesn't know they've been made free by Jesus. That's all. That's why the Bible says Jesus told us to occupy till he comes. The battle has already been won. The war is over. You are now an occupying force. You are now to take back that which Satan had stolen from the people of God. You don't have to do the fighting. Your only fight is the fight of faith. Because it's through faith that you take possession or occupy that which Satan originally stole. But Satan doesn't have any choice now. He has nowhere to go. He's just waiting for the end. He has no way to recapture the glory and the honor that God put upon mankind. Now, not all mankind is going to walk in it. Only those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives and that grow according to the mystery of Paul's gospel. Who we are in Christ, in other words. But it tells us that the accuser of the brethren is cast down. You need to understand that. Satan is not standing before God accusing you day and night. He has nothing to accuse you of. He accuses you. But he doesn't accuse you to God. See, that's why people look at the book of Job and they say, well, is that how it works today? Is Satan going in and out of the presence of God and, and, and accusing the people of God? Are you kidding? Do you really think God lets Satan come into heaven? He has a free pass? The Bible says that he's under your feet. He can't get to heaven. He's under your foot. How's he going to get to heaven under your foot? He doesn't accuse you to God. He accuses you to you. How do you defeat that? By saying who you are in Christ. Now is the, this salvation. Now is the accuser of the brethren cast down. And they overcame him. His eye overcome. This is not in the future. This is now. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. What does that show? That shows the place of the blood of Jesus, which makes you righteous. It shows the place of the word of God in your mouth, which is your way of exercising authority over the devil. And it shows that you love the things of God more than you love this life. In other words, you put spiritual things first. You put eternal things first. Those are the three characteristics that it talks about overcoming. Okay, I'm glad you're excited about that. Okay, notice verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down upon, unto you, having a great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. 
Now, folks, we know of the tribulation as being the wrath of God, but you need to understand something. The devil knows that the time is short. He doesn't know when the time is, but he knows the time is short. He's able to look around, too. He's able to see things that happen now that are different than the way things used to happen 20 years ago. Look at how the world has changed just in the last 20 years. Look at things you can get away with now that you couldn't get away with 20 years ago. Look at the language. What's acceptable to say now that wasn't acceptable just 10 or 15, 20 years ago. Men are getting worse and worse. Sin is becoming more and more and more acceptable. It's becoming mainstream. Now, it's not a a matter of whether or not you can say the F word on on primetime TV. It's how many times you can say the F word. The world is going crazy. And everybody's sitting back saying, well, it should be okay. You need to understand something. The devil, knowing that his time is short, he pours out his wrath before God ever pours out his. The devil has great wrath before the end because he knows his time is short. That's what I think you're seeing a lot of happening in the world now. If the devil had any long-term or long-range plans to stay in control here on the earth, he wouldn't be trying to tear it up. If the devil had any long-range plans of, of, of controlling the financial system of this world, he wouldn't be destroying it. You can expect to see the wrath of God, or the wrath of Satan before you ever see the wrath of God. And thank God we won't. As the church, we won't. But what I mean is you're going to see the wrath of Satan before the tribulation ever shows up. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now. I think we're seeing a lot of that now. But here's the good news. The Bible says Jesus is coming for a glorious church. A glorious church. What is a glorious church? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 says that God cleanses the church through the washing of the water by the word. In other words, that same gospel that Paul said you're established by is what the Bible says you're made glorious by. You know what that means? That means you and I ought to be growing in the supernatural. If you're not, you need to check up on what's going on in your life. You should be growing in the knowledge of who you are in Christ. You should be growing. You should be occupying more and more of the devil's territory that he's taken from you. Jesus is not coming for a church hiding in a cave. He's not coming for a church that's got Y2K food left over and stored up somewhere. (laughs) He's coming for a glorious church. A church that's living above the circumstances of the world. A church that's provided for when the world is scrambling. Trying to figure out where we're going to come up with the next thing that we need. He's coming for a church that while the world is screaming about health care, the, the church is living in health. That's the glorious church that the Bible talks about. It's the supernatural. It's the church walking in the wild factor of God. Well, we'll go a little bit further with this next time, but we need to stop here. We're out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, that Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we are righteous. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with the stripes we are healed. Thank you, Father, that Jesus has restored us. Jesus, the Lord of glory, has restored His people, those that make Him the Lord of their lives, to the glory of God. Father, we pray that that glory would be seen upon us. We pray that that glory would be seen in our lives. As we confess that glory, Father, as we confess who we are in you,
We thank you that you cause that glory to be made manifest in every area of our lives. We thank you, Father, that others that don't know Jesus see that glory upon us. Maybe others that are saved but don't know anything about who we are in Christ see that glory on us as well, Father. Make it a light that draws the unsaved and the unlearned just like a moth is drawn to a flame. Let that flame, that fire of God be in us so that we take back everything the devil has stolen. Father, you said in the Old Testament concerning the devil robbing your people, Israel, you said you reprimanded them because they didn't call for restoration. You said none calls for restore. None saith restore. We do. We say restore in the name of Jesus. We say restore in the name of Jesus. That which the locust has eaten. That which the work of the devil has stolen from us. We say restore, Father. We speak restoration to families by the glory of God. We speak restoration of health by the glorious healing power of God. We speak restoration of finances by the glory of God. We speak restoration of soundness of mind by the glory of God. Father, we speak the miraculous by the glory of God. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to serve you. What a privilege it is to know the mystery that was hidden from the beginning of the world. The mystery that was hidden in you, Father, but has now been revealed. And that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. We worship you, Lord. We magnify your holy name. We glorify you. Jesus, we worship you. Let's just stand on our feet and feet. Stand on your feet. Let's lift our hands and just worship the Lord for a few moments. We've got time for that, don't we? Lord, we worship you. We magnify your name. Glory to the name of Jesus. Glory to the name of Jesus. Lord, you've crowned us with glory and honor. You've given us dominion over the works of your hands. We glorify you, Jesus. You've defeated the enemy. You brought him to naught. <laughs> you spoiled principalities and powers. All for us. That we might walk in victory. That we might walk in health. That we might walk in blessing. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, we worship you. We glorify you, Lord Jesus. We glorify you, Lord Jesus. Master and Savior, soon coming King. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so good to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy that endures forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've made us righteous. It's so good to be clean in your sight, Father. It's so good to be clean in your sight. It's so good to be clean in your sight.
Blessed be your name, Lord. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we worship you. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we are pleasing in your sight. That we are pleasing in your sight now because of the work of Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus. Bless you, Lord 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 Jesus. Well, the glory of God's here. There's a mist hanging right above your head. Whatever you need, reach up and receive it. The glory is here. And the more you worship, the stronger it gets. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for manifesting yourself. Manifesting your presence to heal. If you need healing, just reach up into that and say, I take it now by faith. Manifesting your delivering power. If you're oppressed, if the devil is attacking your mind, just reach up and receive the peace of God. The peace of God. Yeah. There are people here that are worried about financial situations. Just reach up and by faith. Say, I receive the peace of God. I refuse to worry because my God is supplying my needs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How can that deal not work when a child of God has claimed it by faith? How can it not come to pass when the children of God are exercising authority in the name of Jesus? Oh, Father, thank you for your glory. Thank you for the supernatural. Thank you for the miraculous. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say this after me. I receive by faith of the glory of God to meet my needs. To heal my body. To bring restoration into my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name.
In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' name. Strongholds broken. In Jesus' name. Habits broken. In Jesus' name. Addictions broken. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Say it with me. It's mine. I have it now. By faith, it's mine now. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great day. Plan to be back with us for prayer school at 5 o'clock and healing school at 6 if you can. We love you. And you're dismissed.